privilege, um, this actually ranks as one of the top stressors, um, had the opportunity to move to a new city. Is it something you've ever done? And I think we all can kind of relate to this to some extent. We've all moved somewhere. Some of you are like, no, I've lived in Rowlett my whole life, and uh, this is all I've known. I've never actually traveled beyond the city limits, and to you, this might be a hard illustration to grab a hold of. But for everybody else, and I think the transient nature of Dallas lends itself to this, it's hard moving to a new city. I remember when we packed up and left San Diego in 2005, uh, we gave away what we could, and then we packed everything else into a $500 pickup truck, okay? So we were traveling in style. Um, it looked like, you ever seen Beverly Hillbillies? You know what I'm saying? Like had the, I literally had pieces of plywood that extended the bed of the truck higher, had my mattress tied to the roof, had bicycles tagged on the back, and then we had a car and a cat. And so we were driving out uh, to Dallas. We'd never been here. We had one contact. Uh, my wife's crazy uncle. Crazy uncle, if you're watching on Facebook, you know you're crazy. Um, so we're driving across uh, New Mexico, and, and we hit El Paso. And we were like, we made it! We made it! We were so excited. I still have this picture. Oh my gosh. Madeline and I are like, <laughs> in front of the Texas star. We thought we were right there. <laughs> we saw the sunrise go up and go down and go up. And it was going down again by the time we reached Dallas. I had never been into a, I'd never been anywhere like West Texas. Anyway, aside. So we drive into Dallas, and we are so overwhelmed by DFW. I mean, we thought San Diego's big. DFW is just gargantuan, and there's highway systems and all that. And, and we, we rented an apartment online, which was risky. And um, we, we showed up, and it turned out to be uh, not worth the risk. Anyway, um, we needed a place to shop, a uh, place to buy groceries. We didn't have any furniture. We did a lot of standing in our first apartment. Um, there was one place to sit down. I'll let you kind of reason that one out. It's so we, um, we were really overwhelmed. One of the first places we looked for was a place of worship. I don't know how important that is to you. One of the most important things in our family's life. And we just like looked for a place to worship. Um, we needed a grocery store and a pharmacy and a Starbucks, right? Important stuff. And so what's interesting is I've been like thinking through these missionary journeys and, and at times, you know, I'm like looking at it and I'm starting to see them from a whole different perspective. We're in, in Paul's second missionary journey and often I will look at it and I'm like, yeah, they're often they're entrepreneurial and that pioneering spirit, you know, they're like, they're boldly proclaiming the gospel. They're going from city to city. And now I'm like looking at it and I'm like, it, they're probably like normal people. They're probably, they, they were just like us. And they would arrive in a city, and they would need the same stuff that we need. They would need a place to live. They would need a place to work. They would need a place to shop and buy groceries. I don't know, like the, the country mark or whatever. And, and they were going to need a place to worship. And because their purpose was what? Do you all remember? What, what is the purpose of the missionaries in, in Acts chapters 1 through ever? What, what's the? Preach the gospel. That's why they existed. That was their mission. So wherever they went, they went there specifically to preach the gospel. So they needed a place to worship and they needed a place to preach. Well, today we are traveling with Paul from the city we were in last week. And for a hundred bucks, where were we? Does anybody remember where we were last week? <laughs> we got the answer. Doug Starkey, I love you. Just big old hug. In first service, it was crickets, man. And I was like, it starts with odd, ends with thins. And people are like, 
No idea. Still not tracking. It's early first service. Athens, right. So can you bring up a map for me, Shelly? Can you all say thank you, Shelly? Without you, we wouldn't have a map. I'm a map, 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 I'm a... Some of you have been tortured by that program, like we have, Dora the Explorer. Anyway, thank you, Miss Shelley. Uh, so Paul, last week, was in the city of Athens, and I, I, as much as it's an important city, it's an intellectual city, or it was an intellectual city, it was this hub of, of, uh, of pagan worship and philosophy and schools of like Plato and Aristotle, it was important, but it wasn't a very big city. There was about 10,000 people, and so Paul, as we remember last week, preached the gospel in the synagogue, and then he was taken before uh, the Areopagus. The he was taken before the council, and he was able to share the message that there's a living God. And it was bold, man. I don't know if you remember last week, but he literally said, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He doesn't live there, like pointing up at the Acropolis where there was like the temple of Athena and then Athena Nike where, haha, the first Nikes were created, blah, blah, blah. And then there was that other temple and he's like literally like saying all that you believe in, all that you're trusting in, it's, it's completely wrong. And what's, what's so heartbreaking as I, as I look at the city of Athens is there was such a small harvest. I mean, there's just nothing in the text that tells us that there was a massive harvest. There was a harvest. Some people came to faith. But it shows us that there's such a lull and a pull towards idolatry and rebellion. Like, that's our natural posture as humanity. Like, we naturally are that way. Like, I don't have to wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I'm going to be rebellious today. I'm going to make a list of five or six things that are going to kind of step out in rebellion. I don't have to actually think about it. Did you know you don't even have to think about rebellion? It just comes naturally. And so this city of Athens, so heartbreaking, they like held on to their temples. They held on to their idols, although there was a small church planted. And uh, we do have some historical evidence of that. But Paul stays there for a while, and then he travels 53 miles uh, over here, kind of heading west. This is cool to see the gospel continuing to spread west. And Athens at the time, there was roughly 10,000 people in the city. So it's kind of a small city, plus tourists, very, very much a tourist hub. He goes to Corinth which at the time is like a mega city, okay? There's like 200,000 to like three quarters of a million people living there. We look at that and we're like, eh, that's not that big. That was massive in the first century. Corinth was a major, major hub of trade and industry. And I'm not sure what drew Paul to Corinth. Maybe there was some connection there. We see he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla. I think that he chose that city because it was so big. In fact, it sat in this strategic location. You can't actually see it, but there was a land bridge that broke up the, what is the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea, and it was only three miles across, and so boats would carry their cargo right into the port of, of Corinth in the Aegean, and then they would be able to take the cargo. They had this incredible system of logs and pulleys where they could literally move entire ships three miles from one sea to the other, because apparently it was, this is really rough sailing, 200 nautical miles of death, basically is what they called it. So they had this little land bridge, and it was this crazy port of like all of these, these, this commerce and all this trade moving in and out. It was this bustling city. In fact, today, take a look at this next picture. Kind of grainy, but you can sail in. This is called the, the Corinth Canal. It was built in the 1800s. It never really was used for any commerce. It's kind of like a tourist attraction now, but this is kind of that land bridge. Well, Corinth sat right in the middle of it. So what Corinth was filled with uh, was, was all kinds of stuff. So look at your Bible, Acts chapter 18. Everybody say word. 
we're opening up to Acts 18. Um, I will give you a minute there to scroll there or flip there in your Bible, or if you have nothing in your hands, just kind of zone out for a few minutes or a few seconds. <laughs> Verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left what city? Ten points. And went to what city? Good job. Okay. And he, it says here uh, in the text that he leaves Athens. He goes to Corinth. And again, it's this big, sprawling mega city. And what the city is filled with, this is so interesting to me, it had, had all kinds of, of commerce. There was all kinds of temples there. Uh, let's see here. The city was bursting with a theater and had sailors and commerce and prostitutes. Lots and lots of prostitutes. In fact, uh, the city boasted the largest temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. Does anybody have any idea who, what she was the goddess of? Eh, a little more erotic than that. Uh-huh. So well, that's where we get the word aphrodisiac. Uh-huh, that's why people eat, eat uh, oysters. Ugh. Just raw? Anyway, I'm not getting into that. But um, it's where we get the concept from. Uh, in this temple, here it is actually, it boasted many priests, but you know what that temple actually boasted? 1,000 cult prostitutes ready for worship. In fact, I quote here from Dr. Constable writing about the city of Corinth. Listen to this. The reputation of Corinth is, Ill- it's kind of like, what's the reputation of Las Vegas? Fine, upstanding city, place of prayer, worship, um, t- I can't even go any farther. We know what the reputation of Las Vegas is. Well, this was like way worse. The reputation of Corinth was illustrated by the fact that the verb to act like a Corinthian was used of practicing fornication, and the phrase Corinthian girls, which seems highly complimentary, uh, it wasn't. It designated harlots. So this is where Paul moves his evangelistic efforts. And we have every reason to believe that he enters a city by himself. And so I want us to break out of this mindset of like Paul the superhero to Paul like average human being walking into this city and he doesn't know anybody. He needs a place to live. He needs a place to work. He needs a place to worship and he needs a place to share the gospel. That's why he's come. Verse 2. It says, and he found a Jew. That word found in Greek, it literally means he sought after. So it's kind of like when we got to the city of Dallas, we sought after uh, some like-minded folks because the crazy uncle, he was cool, but crazy. And we, again, I love you. Um, we found a church, and so he seeks out Aquila, who turns out to be a Jew. He, he was originally from Pontius, which is northern Turkey. But he and his wife Priscilla, I want you to kind of file this name away, Priscilla and Aquila. Fascinating, we get Aquila's name first. He's the guy, and Priscilla's his wife. From here on out, though, it's always Priscilla first. And I believe it's because she was the minister, like she was the one that God was used to minister. And Aquila was kind of like, you know, her sidekick, which is kind of interesting because we often think of, in the scriptures, we often think, of, well, it's all man-centered. And I'm like, well, not with Priscilla and Aquila. Anyway, so we meet them. They get kicked out of Rome because apparently there was an uprising. So they, they flee Italy, Priscilla and Aquila, and they make their way to the city of Corinth and they set up shop and they're tent makers. Okay, so the text tells us uh, he, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently from Italy with his wife. I guess I already told you all that. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were what? Tent makers. And I've often looked at that, and I'm like, how many tents did they need? Like, that was an actual trade. Was everybody living in a tent? It's kind of a misnomer. It actually means leather worker. 
They like worked in fabrics and, and all kinds of artistic stuff. And so like it was a, it was a craft. And, and what I find is so cool about this is, is Paul, he had a job. You know, he worked. And he set about his work and, and he moves into their house. He finds a place to live and he finds a place to work. And what I think is interesting is that we all have work to do. Some of us love our jobs. Some of us hate our jobs. Some of us would love to have a job to hate. Some of us are just so happy and tickled that we don't have to go to work on Monday. How many of y'all, any of y'all pleased with that? Some of you are like, hey, cut it out. I got to work Monday. I'm sorry. The rest of us don't. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but no matter what we do for work, please listen to me. A Christian's work is to share the gospel, no matter where we work. That is our job. That is our calling. That is our mission. And that doesn't mean that you walk into your office and you stand on the desk and you go, Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross, was buried and he's risen. But it does mean you build relationships and you shine light and you, you earn the opportunity to share Jesus with people. Your job, that's your job. That's what Paul's job was. And in fact, verse 4, it says he got to work. I mean, he's doing tents. That's how he provided for himself. But then he, he started his ministry. Where do you think he began his ministry, family? Just like every other city he visits. He begins in the synagogue. It says in the text, he reasoned in the synagogue every Saturday, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I love that word, persuade. You could basically translate it as proselytize. And in today's vernacular, we're like, oh, that's such a bad word. Let me, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I literally set out every single week to persuade you to believe in Jesus and place your faith in his death, burial, resurrection for the payment of your sins that you can have a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I literally am setting out to persuade you and to proselytize you and us to grow in our spiritual life. So just in case you were curious, that's what I'm doing every single week. Using everything I can think of to persuade you to grow in your spiritual life. That's exactly what Paul was setting out to do. In fact, it says in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, what was Paul occupied with? He was occupied with the word. He was teaching the word. He was, he was proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Who was his target audience at this point? In verse 5. Testifying to who? Why do you think he was focusing on the Jews first? Well, because it's his people. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so he starts off ministering uh, to the Jewish people, and he's testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. He's like, look, guys, look at the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of all this prophecy. He is truly the Messiah, and he has risen from the grave. And he's not only our Messiah, he's the Savior of the world. And what's fascinating is we get to see the reaction, the response. And it's pretty typical to every city we've been in so far. Some believe, some receive Christ, and then others just completely reject Jesus. In fact, it says we get the rejection first. How, by the way, a little survey monkey here. How many of you all like to be rejected? Huge surprise. I don't see any hands, Grace. How many of you like to be strongly opposed and rejected? 
So basically, your message is rejected, and then you're maligned as the messenger. Does that sound like fun to any of you? I can think of all kinds of activities I want to be a part of. That's not one of them. But it says in the scriptures, when they opposed and reviled him, why do you, what, did, what did they oppose? The gospel, his message. And who did they revile? The messenger. That word revile, it means they said all kinds of vile things about him. It tore down his character. And that's one of the biggest fears that I have in sharing the gospel. Do you know I get anxious every single Sunday before I stand up here and preach? I get anxious every time I'm like sitting there in a conversation with somebody and I feel like God's like, okay, share my message. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, but what if they reject me? Isn't that a painful feeling? It takes us all back to junior high. I'm sorry, junior hires, if, you're, if there's any junior hires in here. But none of us as adults have any fond memories of junior high. It is an awkward year, two years. Well, for me, three years, whatever. Don't laugh at that. That's not funny. Or is this a slow learner? You know how many times I took Spanish one? Three times. I don't know why I share that. But it's interesting because Paul is reviled and he's opposed, and I think he responds in anger. Because I don't know about you, but I'm just trying to think of like how people are going to respond if I just went, your blood be on your own heads. <laughs> I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. It's kind of dramatic. I think Paul just kind of got upset here, and that makes sense because that's kind of a part of his rhythm. But in, in reality, it's true. And he's like, look, you reject the message, you reject the messenger, but you never can say you never heard. And there are times, family, when you are bringing the right message and you are being a good messenger, and people are going to reject you, and they're going to reject the message. But that's not your fault. And really, who's responsible at that point for their salvation? Who is the one that turned away? The hearer. Paul just needed to be faithful. So he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And you know where he moves? Right next door. I love this. Verse 7. He left there, like, walks out of the synagogue, walks right into Justice's house. Like, literally right next door, this building, right next to the, the synagogue, and uh, moves into Justice's house. Turns out he's a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And then a crispy cereal, verse 8. Every time I hear the same Crispus, I think that is such a good name for a cereal. doesn't get soggy with milk. But Crispus, very, very prominent guy in, in the city of Corinth. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He believes. That's profound. Let's talk about influence. He believes. His whole household believes. And then it says many of the who. What was that name synonymous with? What's that? I'm not repeating that, but yeah. <laughs> it's fornicators. These dirty fornicators. And now they're believers. And they're, getting, and they're getting baptized. You know, I think it's fascinating that so often churches are focused on keeping the riffraff out. I'm like, no, 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 the church is about bringing the riffraff in. Does someone amen that, Right? Y'all feel that? Isn't that the reality? Now, we'll, we'll read in Corinthians, there were some issues that popped up. They were a messy bunch, messy church. But many of them were believing and being baptized. I mean, that's what we're talking about today. You place your faith in Christ, and you follow him in believer's baptism, which will be June 3rd. And so if you haven't been baptized, there's a, there's a plug for our baptism. Get baptized. There's no such thing as a, in the New Testament as a non-baptized believer. 
Anyway, so the, this church is growing, which is just incredible. Uh, you got these believers coming to faith. You got the church just expanding and exploding out of Justice's house. But here's something that I, I've, I've, I've struggled with. Ministry. Life. It's discouraging. Any of y'all ever discouraged by life? And you're just like, well, what's the point? Anything good coming out of this? You know, there are times um, and seasons of deep discouragement, you know, where I'm left asking. I, I literally, there have been times where I'm like, God, are you still here? Are you still in this? Are you still moving in this city? Like, are you still moving in and among this people, us people? Are we, are you here? There's times of conflict and there's friction. And, and I think that's not just in ministry, that's just in life. Paul gets a word from God. And I'm, I just took it this week as a word for me. And you can, just, you can take it as a word for you too. Because so, here's something that you don't often think about when it comes to people like Paul or Peter or people from the scriptures, but they were just like us. Look at what God said. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. This didn't happen all the time. You know this idea that Paul was getting these visions all the time? That's not true. And God, at specific strategic times, would speak to him. And God said to him, do not be afraid. Can somebody give me a reason? Why do you think God said, don't be afraid? Probably because he was afraid. And he was anxious. And he was discouraged. He'd been reviled. He'd been opposed. God says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. So often when we're in fear or we're, we're facing conflict, we have this tendency to like to isolate and kind of like pull back. God's like, no, 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 no. Just continue. I, I am with you. I feel like if I know God is with me, I'm like storming hell with a water pistol. Like, <laughs> like God is with me. If I feel like God is not with me, I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere. But God's like, look, Paul, I'm with you. And, and no one's going to harm you. No one will attack you. Listen to this. I have many in this city who are my people. They just don't know it yet. And I listened to this, to, uh, you know, I just read over this over and over this week, and I just felt like God was saying, Chris, don't be afraid. Sometimes I get scared about sharing the gospel, being out there and trying to take the gospel to the community. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you. There are many in this city who are my people. Did you know that there are, there are thousands of people who woke up this morning? <laughs> Sunday, oh, what am I going to do today? Smoke a brisket? Get ready for tomorrow. Go to the lake. They have no idea they're God's people. And we're not going to remain silent. And we're going to share the message. You know what's going to happen? They're going to believe. And they're going to place their faith in Christ. And they're going to be saved. And they're going to be a part of his people. Do you believe that God still has people in this community that are his? They just don't know it yet. Do you believe that? I do too. So Paul keeps preaching, verse 11. In fact, he keeps preaching for a year and a half. It gave him the courage. It was like that Gatorade stand in the middle of the marathon. He stayed at it. A year and six months, he's teaching the word of God among them. He's proclaiming Jesus. People are getting saved. And then Sosthenes, this guy, golly. You know, there's always going to be conflict when you're doing the Lord's work. And I forget this, because when conflict comes, Kelly, we've talked about this before. We, we'll, we'll often reference the reality that when we're being faithful to the Lord, 
we almost like start looking around, okay, where's the conflict going to come from? Because we know. But then even when it happens, I'll come to you and I'm like, I don't know why there's so much conflict. And you're always like, well, because we're doing the Lord's will. It's so encouraging to be reminded. Because when I face conflict, I don't know about you, my tendency is to pull back. How about you? And I'm not talking about the conflict that we cause. Like there's conflict that we just, because we're frictious or whatever. I'm, not, I'm talking about conflict because you're doing God's will. Because you're being Christ in your community. You're being Christ in your family. And you, you, like, you know that awkward moment where you're with your family and you go to pray and they get all weird? Like, it's just uncomfortable. And you're like, oh, I kind of want to pull back. Well, I want to encourage us, no, press in. Lean in. Because God said, I'll be with you. Look at this. It says, when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, I wish I could go into great lengths on Gallio. He's such a fascinating guy. There's tons of extra biblical material about that. I'm pointing back here. About Gallio. Very well-respected Roman official. uh, Highly esteemed in the Roman world. Anyway, they bring him before the pro-council, and this is the uh, accusation. He, this man, is persuading people to worship God. I wish the statement ended there, Because that's absolutely what he was doing. But then they add to it, these knuckleheads, contrary to the law. He was not preaching anarchy, by the way. It was not contrary to Roman law. It was contrary to their interpretation of the Jewish law and their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And so they bring Paul, drag him, before this high council in this mega city, and I love it. Because what do you do when somebody brings an accusation against you? You what? You defend yourself. Here's what's crazy. I don't know if any of you, I'm going to let you in on peace of my mind. <laughs> there are times where I will literally drive around and I will, I will think of a conflict that may or may not happen. And I will prepare my defense. And I'll literally, I'll literally sound it out. I'll start arguing. There are times where literally I will dream up conflicts. They're not even, they're not even close to reality. But I'll argue them out. And I'm just like thinking, I'm just keeping my skills sharp. You know, I'm just preparing. There are times you're, where you're going to have to face conflict, and I'm going to tell you right now, there are times where you, you won't even have to defend yourself. We are so prone to defend ourselves, and sometimes we, God's just like, look, vengeance is mine. They bring this accusation. In verse 14, it says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, I'm like trying to visualize it. Was he like, Like, that still frame. Like, he's about to open his mouth. He's about to defend himself. Gallio said to the Jews, look, if it were a matter of, uh, of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Like, if he was doing something that was wrong, and we don't realize, but this is profound judgment. Because he's sitting on the Bama seat of judgment of Rome. This is like the high court. This is like Supreme Court. And he basically is about to rule. We're going to leave the Christians alone. Listen to this. Uh, But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to yourself, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. Literally, the bouncers drove out this united attack, which is awesome. Just out of curiosity, how many of you enjoy (laughs) when somebody like tries to do you wrong, but they themselves get done in a little bit? Like that moment where that guy's tailgating or gal's tailgating you and they, they go, and like you go around the corner and they're pulled over. <laughs> it is awesome, right? You're like, eh, eh. 
Jesus loves you. There's a little pep in that step afterwards, right? How many of you all like it when somebody gets it, when they were trying to bring it? Come on. Come on. Some of you are like, I just don't like raising my hand in public, but I am so all over that. (laughs) So Sosthenes took over when Crispy Cereal left the head of the synagogue. And he is the one that kind of drove this united attack against Paul. Look, it says, and they all, I think this is those, these Jews who had brought this, they had been so publicly humiliated, and Sosthenes was the one that instigated it. And so it says they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. We're like, yeah! <laughs> Paul's just standing there like, this is the weirdest day ever. Ah... <laughs> uh, I'm going to go hang out with Crispy Cereal. This is, just, this is just too much. And it says that Gallio paid no attention to any of this. He just gets beat. It's like the book of Esther where Mordecai or Haman builds this big gallows to hang Mordecai on, but Haman's the one that swings. It's like the book of Proverbs where it talks about when we dig a ditch or when we set a trap to trap or, or ensnare somebody else, we ourselves get ensnared. It's such a good reminder that when you set out to tear somebody down, you yourself might be torn down. Be careful. Revenge? That's not our business anymore. Retaliation, self-defense, family, that stuff's a thing of the past. God is with us. We don't even have to open our mouths. Well, after this, Paul stayed many days, verse 18. Then he took leave of the brothers, that is the family. The church has been established at Corinth. They set sail for Syria, so we are now concluding our second missionary journey. And it says he, with him, Priscilla and Aquila, you notice how Priscilla's first? That is cool. Uh, They sail. They're now missionaries. How many of y'all think that's amazing? They went from being tent makers, now they're in the full-time missionary work. So they sail, uh, and apparently Paul stopped at Supercuts at Centrea. I have no idea why this is in here. Uh, but it says that at Centrea, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. All of the commentators are like, uh, no idea. He got a haircut. Um, he apparently had some type of vow and it involved his hair. That was between Paul and God, but now it's in the scripture, so we've got to talk about it. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. This is a very, very important city. Can anybody think of what book that coincides with? Uh, Ephesians. Yes, all these cities coincide with these epistles that we have in the New Testament, this book of Acts serving as a framework. And he left them there, that is Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, which is a very good statement, by the way, like making plans. Hey, if God wills, God does will, he will return to Ephesians, or not Ephesians, Ephesus. And he set sail from Ephesus, next verse. Uh, And it says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Shelly, last time, the map. So he has just completed this entire loop. He's gone from Antioch. They've traveled all the way up. You guys remember, what did Paul have in Troas, that vision? The Macedonian man, remember that? Sailed over to Neapolis, Philippi, hopped on the Via Ignatia, down to Thessalonica, to Berea. That's where the Bereans, they were Rebers. Remember the Rebers? They received the word with eagerness. They examined the scriptures. They believed. He went all the way down to Athens. He was over in Corinth. Then he sailed to Ephesus down to, well, he cut his hair right here. Like right there, he got a haircut. 
Go ahead and write that in your notes. Paul got haircut at Centuria. And then sailed down to Caesarea, went to the church, the, the first church, established church at Jerusalem, and then he went back to Antioch and celebrated this completed second missionary journey. You all just completed the second missionary journey of Paul. Isn't that wonderful? You guys are just taking this wonderful tour. You can clap. What's the appropriate response? So the question is, and I'm not going to go any farther into the verse because the next verse actually introduces the third missionary journey and final missionary journey, in fact, of Paul. The question we have to ask now is we've looked at the scriptures, okay? It's, it, we read, we examine them, okay? So we make observations, we interpret, like, what does the text mean? But most importantly now, how do we apply it? How do I live out what I just studied in the scriptures? Well, the first application that comes directly from the text is this statement, our true work. What is our tr true work? Well, here's the deal. We all have a job to do. All of us have a job. Something that we undertake to provide for ourselves and for our families. Work is not something to be avoided or complained about. We, in fact, we are made to work. And so if any of you have this idea of like, oh, I'm going to go to heaven and, and I'll just sit there all day, that's not heaven. And by the way, that sounds awfully boring. We were made to work. In the garden, we were made to work. Man was made to work. Man and woman was made to be about a task. Well, I want to encourage you, a Christian's work is to share the gospel no matter where we work. Years ago, I worked at Geico. I worked for the Gecko. I actually, I've met the Gecko. I know. I'm way cooler now in your eyes, right? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to name drop. But I did. I met the gecko. I got a picture. I'm sure it was a guy in a gecko suit because geckos do not grow that large. Anyway, <laughs> I was at Geico or gecko, gecko, gecko. And, and I was frustrated because I wanted to be in full-time vocational ministry. And what I meant is I wanted to dedicate all my life to being in the church. And I went to this pastor and I was like, I'm so disappointed. I want to be in the ministry. I'm in seminary and I want to do this. And he looks at me. He goes, Chris, you're already in ministry. Look at where you work. You have access to people who will never come here. And I was frustrated. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll go back to the gecko. And so I go back, and you know what's crazy? Over the year and change that I worked there, I got to lead a fellow coworker to Christ. I got to share the gospel with all kinds of people just through natural conversation. I got to pray. That whole sixth floor, that was, that was my missionary territory. And I got to hang out really on the ninth floor. It was, it was an empty space. I would sing and I would just worship up there and I'd pray over the entire building. I got to meet and, and share the gospel with security guards, uh, people that, that serviced and, and, and all kinds of claims. And, you know, as I look back on it, I had more opportunities to be a missionary when I worked outside of the church than when I work in it. I literally have to, I have to physically leave this property. I have to actually go seek people out when I'm kind of jealous, but you guys are surrounded by lost people all day long. It is such a privilege that you all have. What a gift to be light and salt. And so with that in mind, God has many people in the city. I hope that's something that you think about. You know, God has many in the city. They don't know him. They're lost. They, they have no realization that they're a child of the living God, but you're going to introduce them. Maybe neighbor, family member, all that. That's really cool. I'm excited by that, that God's still in this. Um, I could just tack in there number three, flee Corinth. I'm not going to develop that, but you got the idea of who the Corinthians are. 
flee that stuff. Uh, number four, I know I always have three applications, but I've decided to branch out. Here's number four. Um, we don't always have to defend ourselves. I hope you saw that in the text. Like when you feel yourself going, just close them out. Like God's going to defend you. I mean, there are times where we have to give a, an accurate defense, but that wasn't one of them. We don't always have to defend ourselves. Because God will do it for us. And he does it so much cooler than we can. Um, I could add in there, celebrate when that person gets it. When No, don't do that. <laughs> Although it is very satisfying. And then finally, believe and be baptized. All joking aside, family belief. I set out every week to persuade you to believe. If you are here and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, listen to me. He did die for you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was crushed, crucified. He was taken down from the cross and he was buried in the grave. And the Bible records he's risen and he's alive. And the Bible states that all who believe in him, all who trust in him will be saved. I, I beg you to receive him as your savior. I plead with you. Believe in him. And then family, be baptized. There is no greater moment than when you receive Christ in the next best moment. Raphael can testify to this. Not quoting you on that one either. If you all were not at Raphael's baptism, it was amazing. Um, every baptism is amazing. Be, be baptized. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace and just the, this wonderful body. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church like Firewheel. So grateful to be a part of a community like Rowlett and surrounding cities. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to shine love on this city and surrounding cities. That we can say without any doubt, that you are love. God, you love us. You love the world. And we get to be your ambassadors of love and grace. I pray that those who feel unloved today, here right now, would feel loved. And I pray that you give us courage to share your love with others. In fact, if you're here uh, this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, let's, just, let's have a moment, you and I. I I don't know what's keeping you from believing in Jesus. I don't know what walls have erected. I don't know what people have done to you. Maybe somebody has done you wrong. Maybe people who were quote-unquote Christians hurt you. Or maybe you just are th you're thinking all the questions, all the doubts. And, and look, I just want to tell you, friend, Jesus died for you. And I think you're, you're wanting to receive him. And I, I'm just going to encourage you, please open your heart to him. Trust in him. He died for you. He's buried. He's risen. So if that's your desire, you want to be saved right now, you want to give your life to Jesus, in the quietness of your heart, just tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I have all kinds of questions, but I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen. Please forgive me of my sins. Please save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, the Bible records you've just passed from death to life. From blindness to sight, you were a child of the living God. You didn't even know it. Now you are. You're forever his. Filled with the Holy Spirit. There's so much to learn. I, I just know you are, you're being celebrated in heaven. The Bible says the angels celebrate one person who receives Jesus. Welcome to the family. And so, Lord, what a joy it is to be a Christian and to be a servant of you. And what a joy it is and a privilege it is to carry your name among the nations. Fill us with that joy. We love you, our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys.